Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back to Coming Clean with your host, Benji Backer. I am so grateful to be joined today by my friend Topher White, and we're going to be talking about rainforests. Uh, but before we get into the topic of the day, which is a very important one and one that we're going to tee up in a second, I really want to allow Topher to introduce himself because he's Mr. Mr. Rainforest, if I can call him that, uh, a National Geographic explorer and the founder of Rainforest Connection. Uh, he's an engineer, he's a physicist. Uh, he's got quite the resume, and he is similar to me and in, in just kind of recently uh, joining the founder and chairman role of these organizations. We're in very similar positions from that standpoint. But Tover, first of all, welcome to the show. And, and second of Thank all, you. please share a little bit about yourself, how you got to where you are, uh, because it's a fascinating story. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and hey, welcome to the uh, executive chair, uh, Club Benji. <laughs> you built such a great organization with ACC. Um, yeah, my background is, is much more, you said, in like physics, software engineering, uh, things like that. Basically doing, building things that, that people need at any given time around the world. Um, I was actually working in, in nuclear fusion in France about uh, ten, 10 years ago when I went out to visit the rainforest in Borneo for the first time in Indonesia, largely because uh, I just love gibbons, this amazing ape that, uh, that, that sings across great distances. They have this great power when they move through the trees. I just loved them at the zoo when I was a kid. Uh, I went out there to visit uh, as a volunteer and realized that there was this unreasonable problem, uh, which was illegal logging um, in that area, and that I could build a little bit of tech to help them do it. And that was what uh, got me into rainforest conservation um, at first. Although certainly you, you, you know that this is something we heard about a lot growing up um, in various respects. But yeah, my background is really in technology, and I'm so lucky that we live in an age when technology can make a difference uh, in these types of issues. Well, it's a great point, and I can't wait to get into kind of what that actually looks like in practice, especially with something as visual and, and hands-on as as the rainforest. But, you know, as you alluded to, I mean, whether you were born in the 60s or the 70s or, like me, in the late 90s, the rainforest was a massive part of education and, A, how important the rainforest is for our planet's health, uh, mm -hmm. and also, B, how it's being destroyed and degraded not just by climate change, but by illegal logging, by the desire to have agriculture, by a whole host of things uh, in, in South America and beyond. Mm -hmm. And it does seem to me like this issue has fallen by the wayside in the name of kind of focusing on climate change as a whole. And I guess I and I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this, but I, I was inspired to care about climate change and the environment be partially because of the rainforest. I mean, it's yeah. it, it was such a striking visual to go to either rainforest exhibits at a zoo or an aquarium or something like that, um, or just learning about it with the Planet Absolutely. Earth documentaries. It's it's uh -huh. something that I think everyone remembers how they feel have how they felt when they've seen or heard about the rainforest, and of course those who are lucky enough uh -huh. to go there themselves. And I think it's, a, again, a, a big tie to people's care about this planet. But it does seem to have kind of fallen by the wayside. You know, we're talking about carbon emissions. We're talking about solar, wind, and nuclear. We're talking about all these things. Mm -hmm. And we often forget about the actual environment that we're trying to protect. Has the conversation around the rainforest gone away as much as it was before because 
it has not gotten worse and we're starting to see improvements and it just doesn't need to be right. talked about as much? Or is there another reason? I mean, I think that, that it is pretty great that it was kind of introduced to us in that way when we were younger. I think that the, one of the reasons that you don't hear about it as much is because there's not as, there's, there's, it's, it's a subject that largely remains similar in terms of the solutions that work the best over the course of the years. And the truth, of course, is that it has gotten much, much worse since, mm -hmm. since we were younger. Um, although that's largely a factor of just the fact that the, the world is scaling in its own way. So um, if you look at the issue, what I think is about 73 or three quarters of all the um, carbon emissions every year come from energy. So of the 25% or so that remains, uh, almost 80% of that, 75-80% of that comes from uh, deforestation and land mm -hmm. use, right? And illegal logging makes up, you know, 30% of all of potentially all of the um, uh, deforestation that's happening around the world, right? Whether it's in boreal forests in the north or tropical forests down there um, in the tropics. And uh, in many ways, it is potentially the fastest, cheapest way for us to stop um, climate change, or at least to, to take a bite out of it, would be through stopping illegal logging. Partially because not all land use is, is, is cutting down the, the big trees and illegal logging, but it's the most lucrative of all environmental crimes, mm. illegal logging. So much money can be made from it. Uh, and it ties so much into other crimes uh, you know, around the world that it's the same networks that are largely implementing it. And so if you think about that, uh, what that ends up meaning is that that's, that's facilitating money laundering, human trafficking, uh, trafficking of, of goods. So there's so many ways in which uh, this one issue, which is an issue of law and order, this can take place at the, it can be stopped at the government level or it can be stopped at the local level. Um, this is possibly the fastest, cheapest way for us to fight climate change simply because impacts can be felt like in, 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 um, in an outsized fashion um, based on work on the ground. So what, what are these illegal loggers doing? Like, what's the incentive for them? Why is it so lucrative? What's amazing is that these, this wood is worth so much and it can be inserted into, into the supply chain that the rest of us use to get our products. We don't know where this wood comes from, which mm -hmm. is another issue we can talk about uh, later. So potentially 30% uh, of the products that, uh, that, that we consume come from illegal logging and many are working to try and fix that. Um, but so much money can be made from it. It's the most lucrative of all these environmental crimes uh, that exist around the world that they'll actually do pretty intense stuff to, to go get the wood. They'll actually cut roads through these, these really you know, intense forests. We're talking about mud, we're talking about hills, we're talking about we need to clear a road through there. They go in there, they'll take um, the, most, the biggest, most expensive trees out, um, and then they'll largely leave that, that area to its own. But once that road is there, that road is an access point for everyone else. There'll be yeah. smaller scale illegal logging. People will come in, set fires, and burn it. And so illegal logging is usually the first activity, the gateway activity that leads to the wholesale destruction of an area. So once illegal logging can come in and take out those really expensive trees, um, make a ton of money on it uh, in a criminal fashion, then those areas are, uh, in many cases, uh, doomed. And so um, if you can stop the illegal logging, you can stop the roads. If you can stop these illegal roads, you can stop the wholesale destruction of the forest. Uh, and that's, of course, what can lead to that, you know, almost a fifth of all carbon emissions uh, every year coming from uh, deforestation land use. Why is it so difficult to prevent that from happening? I mean, it's obviously lucrative. Mm -hmm. uh, is it the government that just isn't standing up against this, th this sort of thing? Are they in on it? Like, what, mm -hmm. what is the reason that we can't? prevented from happening. Obviously, it's not happening in the sure. United States, uh, but in these other countries. Well, I mean, government exists at various levels, right? There's federal government, there's state, there's, you know, provincial government, then there's local. Um, and, you know, people can be internet at various levels along the way. 
But no, it's mostly just that the places that are primary forests, the places that are most susceptible and where the most legal logging takes place are so far from places where people are that it's very easy to, uh, to get away with this sort of stuff. This is a law and order issue in a lot of, a lot of areas. Um, now, that's not to say there are not communities there. There are um, indigenous communities sometimes. There's just remote communities. And many times those are the, the, the ones who suffer the most from uh, the influx of illegal logging influences. Um, sometimes they get put to work in the, short, in the short term, but even that still falls under the, the, the activities of, of, of organized crime. And so it's very rare to see local communities who are employed or, or sort of pulled into these activities benefiting even in the short term. Um, and so, yes, I would say it is a law and order issue. But I don't believe it is remotely the sole responsibility of uh, the law or in order to, uh, to solve it. I think there's, there's far more creative solutions that, that can have bigger impact. Um, that said, uh, you know, but I think it was in 2020, 40% of all the um, illegal deforestation um, around the world was, was happening in Brazil, for example. Um, but if you look back to the be beginning of the century, um, you know, back in, in the early, early 2000s, uh, there were few... In fact, there was no country on earth that was doing as much to fight climate change as Brazil, just based upon their top-down federal enforcement of, of, of um, stopping illegal logging um, in a very kind of military-type sense. Now, that, that trailed off with different administrations and, and, and different priorities, mm. but it is, it is amazing to see that, uh, yeah, these things can be heavily affected by, by governments and, and their priorities. Um, but at the, ultimately, if we want a sustainable solution, it's not going to come from government. It's going to come from um, uh, like local local solutions, local industry, and ultimately finance. It does, yeah. It does seem like the, really the two options in fighting climate change and protecting the environment are huge top down government, you know, policies like you're talking about in Brazil, where they are. I mean, mm -hmm. I I don't know exactly the details of what you're saying here of of what the government was doing sure. with the law and order, but probably pretty oh, hey. pretty stringent chokehold type regulations where you was punishable I by... talk about it. it's it's pretty interesting i mean like the, the yeah at the time satellite imagery especially what was pretty new right and so they were kind of scanning the whole country with satellites right. and then they would go in and, and kind of bust up these major operations now because these were such major industrial scale and illegal logging operations they were there for weeks or months and so they could actually go stop them um but then of course that's a federal agency that can that can be defunded or um you know taken down and so Brazil is a really interesting country. In many ways, I do feel a lot of similarities between their structure and the United States. Uh, and then when you're actually on the ground in these sort of frontier areas with indigenous tribes and with the, the illegal loggers and the rest, it does feel very much like 1800s United States uh, in a lot of ways, as if I was there. Um, it's, yeah, the, the, there's, there's not a lot of, it's easy to relate to, to all sides of that equation. Um, well, and it, it seems like you either have that that significant government intervention where the government's busting up everything, or you mm -hmm. have the marketplace coming up with the solutions. And I ideally, there'd be a balance between the two. But to your point about the government intervention, mm -hmm. I mean, you're seeing this degradation of Brazil's rainforests over the last few years as proof that the government goes between different administrations, like you yes. like, like you said, and and you see that in the United States. I mean, what Obama mm -hmm. did. Trump undid, and now Biden's put it back, and you know the mm -hmm. next Republican president is at risk of you know, undoing it. And sometimes undoing it's the right decision, sometimes undoing it's the wrong decision. And mm -hmm. you know, for some people it's the right decision, for some people it's the wrong decision. That's what makes mm -hmm. the government intervention so difficult: is that it's mm -hmm. a ping pong match. Uh, but it also, yeah, it just doesn't give that stability. But it does show that it can make some some headway, as you saw in Brazil. So mm -hmm. what what we're seeing in Brazil right now, just to focus on that for a second 
Sure. You have a government that, from the outsider view, does not seem like it cares about the future of the rainforest there. For a country like Brazil that is allowing the rainforest to get legally and illegally destroyed, mm-hmm. how do you incentivize that to be different? Well, what's so... Yeah, ultimately, I do feel like the solutions here, and this is from you know spending a lot of time on the ground. They are they are local. It's ultimately very local solutions. Um, I Brazil has gone through a recent um, administration change uh, from Bolsonaro, who, who again was very fiercely um, about expansion, about you know, exploitation of envi- environmental resources, whether it be uh, forests, uh, very anti-indigenous uh, rights in a way. Um, to a new administration, uh, Lula, who was who was the president who was um, was in power when that first sort of fight against deforestation has mm. changed. But again, even the same person can change their priorities. Right. And that seems to be the case with, with Lula. So to your point, I don't think that uh, the relying upon governments in the long run makes sense, especially in a democratic system, which we can all appreciate is the one that we want. So um, I think that at the end of the day, conservation, yeah, if I, if, I had, if I had one kind of conclusion from all this is that conservation is not a top-down activity. Conservation is a local activity that ends up relying upon some group of people. Because again, people are the solution here. Because mm-hmm. this is the we're looking for, unless it's a place where no one lives. Um, and those are other places under threat. Uh, people have to, to be there, want to stay there for generations, and then carry it on. Like it is ultimately a, a kind of conservative approach to, to how you care about, about what's yours. And what's yours doesn't mean that you have to, to cultivate it and, uh, and like Split, control it. Right. Exactly. Um, and so ultimately conservation is a, is a very local thing. Now, again, local can then scale up. Local can be um, a village, local can be a city, uh, you know, I guess these aren't cities we're talking about necessarily, or state. And one of the really cool things about Brazil is the, is the um, tension between the state and local governments and the federal government, right? They all want to kind of, it's, it's a very kind of um, states' rights area, similar to the United States. I've appreciated seeing that because you can have um, one governor who wants to make a point by being ultra green against a president who isn't. Um, and vice versa. So if we take a step back for a second and look at the scale of the Brazil and South American rainforest degradation, mm-hmm. first, can you talk about what that scale actually is? Like, how, how dire is the situation? And can you explain how, as a second part of that question, small, I mean, I, I'm all about small Man. local, con- you know, conservation change, sure. you know, community-based change. But the the critic would say, okay, this problem is at a massive scale. We don't have time to try to do uh-huh. something localized. So can you talk about the scale of the problem and, and how a localized approach or a community-based approach could actually work? Sure. So the scale, it's important to actually put, put the scale into context. So when we talk about, um, we talk about uh, forest being cut down, like why is that contributing to climate change in the first place? It's because over thousands of years uh, when a forest exists, a primary forest, it's gathering up carbon from the atmosphere. It's emitting some as well, but it's, it's gathering up more than it has, and it stores that both in the trees and then mostly in the soil as the trees kind of decompose and get stuck there. Now, um, that ends up being this huge carbon sink, and when you remove those trees, there's some emissions that sort of come out, but ultimately, it is going to get burned or, or, or reused, and that carbon gets emitted. So it ends up being fairly, fairly ridiculous. Like for every, um, let's say, for every square mile of forest, uh, you're looking at thousands of cars off um, on the road for a year in terms of the amount of carbon that's in there. And so that means that when, you know, in the traditional, when we were growing up, we'd hear about football fields um, that, have been, that have been destroyed every minute. 
that's still going. I wouldn't say it's necessarily um, accelerated significantly over the past uh, 10 years, although in some countries it has. But when you talk about a football field, that ends up being equivalent to, you know, you know, 10 football fields would be equivalent to, to thousands of cars. And so uh, this is the type of thing that, that uh, has a very outsized effect. And the cool thing about those areas is that a person or a small group of people or a family or a tribe or a community ends up being able to protect it, which means that these, pr- these very remote rural people who are just trying to protect their own backyards end up having a potential to have more, a bigger outsized impact than a dozen engineers at a climate tech company or electric car company or the rest. And, and so they end up being the heroes of climate change. And so it's not so much that, that everything has to be local only. It's that local people, when it comes to forest protection, have, a, have an outsized effect. Outsized effect. And they're not doing it for, for, they're not doing it to fight climate change. They're doing it for their own personal reasons. But when those align with keeping the forest standing, we have to do everything we can, including sending them tools and hopefully uh, funding as well to be able to do that. So has that anyway, caused conflicts when, I mean, let's say you're in a rural or indigenous you know, community in Brazil and an illegal you know, group of, of loggers comes in. Do they have the power in that situation? Can they just push these people out? How, how is that working? Um, yeah, so I think that illegal uh, logging, because it is such a lucrative industry, they end up having the best tools. Um, and so when I talk about uh, you know, some of these situations being similar to like uh, you know, 1800s, Little House on the Prairie type, type situations, it is, except that now people have smartphones, uh, you know, the ability to look at satellite imagery, major trucks that can drive through anything, and you know, modern weapons. And so, um, yes, this stuff very much ends up in, in, in conflict, but ultimately it's a financial, um, financial issue. Plus, there's a sense of, of, who the, of what the value system is. So um, you have, so let's say, an indigenous tribe we work with in, in Pará, um, which is a state in Brazil. Uh, they have about uh, an area of, of forest, like a, I guess you're similar to a reservation in the United States. It's about the size of Yosemite National Park, right? But it's about 30, 40% occupied by illegal settlers. Those are people who just moved on or decided that it was theirs. And that's a, that's a population that's larger than the entire tribe, so they can't necessarily push them out. Yeah. Now, those settlers are also saying, look, you know, this, you, really, you aren't losing this land. You weren't using this land. You were just, you, you just, it was just forest. And there's a value system baked in that they themselves are, are, are actually there to do something useful with it. Which, as an American, when we think back to what built our country, it was very similar to that kind of thing. Like, it's industriousness. It's yeah. manifest destiny in, in, in one sense. But it's also about uh, going and, you know, working hard. And so that's where you can understand the value system of everyone involved. Um, at the same time, we also believe in law and order in the United States, and we do want to protect um, Occasionally. what's ours. Yeah, yeah. In in in, a, I think I think ultimately we do. I think we we um we slip occasionally, but that's okay. True, true, true. That, but the um, yeah. Ultimately, I think that the conflicts that you see there end up being entire livelihoods. So yes, there is there's definitely violence. There's there's certainly ethnic elements to it, where um where people believe the enemy is indigenous. They believe the or they believe the enemy are the people who are not. Um, and yeah, uh, I'd say that the, the power usually rests in those who are the best equipped and almost always, uh, that is the illegal, legal loggers. So how do you, so, so in a world where we know that government intervention is not sustainable or reliable and that community based action is almost always going to be more achievable when done right Uh and do it right. These communities sound like they need to be equipped with a whole host of resources or 
something has to change for that power dichotomy to to yeah. flip. How do you see equipping these communities to fight back against the illegal logging to be realistic? Well, I think that uh, ultimately any of us want to be building tools to to help them, right? And they're they're anxious for them. I think it's you know great that you know Rainforest Connection is a, is a tech company, but we build apps for you know for people off in the forest uh, as opposed to to the rest um, the rest of us. I do think that ultimately we have to make sure that the funding makes it makes it down to them. If you think about uh, the size of legal logging on a global scale, it's a legal logging is like 150 or forestry crime, I guess, it's 152 billion dollar industry wow. uh, annually. But in the U.S. alone, uh, we have subsidies in the 540 billion um, dollar amount, and so I think that in many cases, agricultural subsidies, agricultural subsidies in 540 billion. Hey. So there's there's many options to kind of uh, reorient those towards forest saving. Um, uh, or land better land use um, options. So the money is there, but in the in in the private sector or the nonprofit sector, which is again we are, most of the money does not make it down to those actual people. Right. It doesn't take that much administration for those people to do their jobs. They just need to make sure that when they come head to head with legal loggers, they aren't the ones who are so uh, ill-equipped. It's really a it's really a power struggle and. Right. I think that that's why it's so easy to understand in the context of all the other issues that we see in our world today. So can you give a few examples of, of your work to try to, to change that and what like equipping a community in that power struggle actually looks like? Well, I mean, you know, everyone has to, to choose what they're, what they're doing. Rainforest Connection um, is not the one equipping uh, them with what they need to necessarily go head to head in a, in, a, in a violent struggle. But we are there to, yeah, let me back up for a second. So Rainforest Connection mostly builds listening devices, listening devices for going off in the middle of nowhere in the forest. Mm-hmm. So uh, we would take these uh, thing called guardians, put them up in the tops of trees in the remote rainforests. Now you talked about what the rainforest is like uh, before about the sound of it. It is really amazing to listen to the rainforest live um, from around the world all the time. Uh, so these things listen, they pick out the sounds of chainsaws, trucks, gunshots, mm-hmm. things like that. And then those alerts, they of course go to us, but they go as well to people that are on the ground who are then able to stop it. Uh, who, who have the chance to stop it. And then we have to get ahead of it. Like Paul, Revere, like Paul Revere warning the, uh, warning the yeah. Americans that the British were coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hopefully you're going to be a little bit faster than that, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah. And then, um, but again, these are not necessarily paramilitary groups. These are not police. These are local communities, local warriors in a tribe uh, who are then, um, uh, you know, need to be, need to be kind of helped along to, to be able to understand what they need to go um, and stop. And usually that'll involve going and, and seizing trucks, seizing equipment from the loggers. So, but again, we're just there to almost highlight the problem. And then almost just as importantly, make it clear to both the local groups, like these, these warriors or tribes or communities, uh, as well as the loggers, that it, that is no longer in an activity that hasn't been discovered. So, um, you know, once, once a crime has been discovered, that raises the stakes, but it also then makes it clear that there's, there's, there's a shifting dynamic of, of um, who has the upper hand. So in a, in a perfect, sorry to interrupt, but in a perfect world, could there be a government that works with you to take these recordings of what's happening to be able to track people who are doing the crimes or, or has that already started to happen? I mean, it seems like a no brainer, a no brainer that the police or the government would, if they were dedicated to protecting the rainforest, would want to use that. Uh, and actually, would probably rather have a, a private company do it than than themselves. Is that is that within the scope of reality or or not? Yeah, 
No, I think it is. And it's similar to what we saw with satellite imagery in Brazil and other places. And, and we do work with governments um, all over the world to, to accomplish that and have. Um, but I still think that if you want a truly scalable solution, it is not going to be, it is not going to be the government that, that's doing that. In many of these places, government doesn't have the reach. They don't, they don't have the resources. And plus, they have other priorities uh, as well. These are, these are really frontier regions sometimes, and they are by definition um, out there. So, yeah, I think that if we really want to affect this problem on a, on a global scale or even on like a country scale, um, the solution has to come from, uh, from people who are not necessarily law enforcement. I think we see that here. Like in the U.S., you know, you're not, no one's coming onto your, onto your lawn and stealing stuff because that's just generally looked down upon. Uh-huh. Um, no, one's, no one's coming and stealing, your, stealing the stuff in your backyard or coming into your house. Now, not that they don't do that, and that's where government comes in. But the more like rampant um, lawlessness is something that I think communities themselves can create a disincentive for. So there is a reality that all of what we're talking about makes sense, but that there's not an, there's not an economic incentive to mm-hmm. protect the rainforest right now compared to that lucrative business of illegal or legal logging, uh, legal or illegal agriculture use. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we need resources in this world to make everything happen. We need wood. We need oil. Mm -hmm. We need solar. We need everything. We need all these things. And ideally, it's done in a legal, sustainable way or as sustainable as possible and as efficient as possible. How how, How do we change the economic incentive? Is it possible to change the economic incentive to show that, look, yes, this illegal logging business is hundreds of billions of dollars. But protecting the rainforest is worth more uh, than that. And I mean, it is for the sake of humanity. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we can we can equip as many local communities to, to beat out the illegal, you know, loggers or have the right governments in place or whatever for as much as we want. I don't see that this problem ever going away mm-hmm. until protecting the rainforest is worth more than destroying it. Is that possible? I completely agree with you. And yeah, I. I remember once I was at a, I was at a great meeting. Um, I gave a little presentation on our work, and this guy walked up to me. He'd been really quiet the whole time. He's like, "I think it's great what you're doing, but I just want you to know that as long as what you're doing is all about stopping somebody from doing something they want to do, it's just never going to work. It's just never really going to fix the problem." And that was a pretty big blow, but he was absolutely right because that is that is the nature of it. Um, and so there needs to be some kind of generative approach to it. And in many ways, I feel like paying people to protect forests, which again, there are markets to do, is somewhat similar um, in that respect. The, there needs to be real innovation in the, in the ways in which standing forests um, are, are creating value that local communities can, can be continually, continually offering. Now, the stored carbon is, is one of those things, and the carbon markets that exist uh, now are a great way to, to make use of that. The problem is similar to what a lot of our listeners can probably agree with, which is that that money doesn't make it to the people who are doing the actual work. Right. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a really exciting carbon market now that, uh, that people are investing in, but of course you can imagine the people who are most excited in it, excited about it are the traders, the administrators, and all, all the way down. So very little money, I think it's uh, on the order of a single percentages of the money that are invested into forest, um, uh, forest-based carbon projects are, um, just don't, don't make it to those on the ground who are doing it. And I think that's what has to, that's what has to change um, because there's not a need for a lot of that administration. Um, 
Yeah, it's similar to saying like, you know, of all the billionaires in the US, uh, most of them are traders on Wall Street, not the entrepreneurs that are, that are building, building great companies that we often build up as the example of those. Um, and I think that's what you're seeing similarly in the, um, in the carbon markets. So one idea- And not just the markets too. Right, right, right. That's, that's very true. One, one idea that has been thrown around is the United States could just pay Brazil mm-hmm. and other countries to stop this and pay more than what the economic value of the agriculture and timber industries are down there. And the United States could work with other countries to do that. Is that an approach that you think could work? Or do you see that as short-sighted? Well, I think um, it's not short-sighted. It's actually very, I mean, if we want them, I think paying people to, to do something you want makes, makes a lot of sense. The problem is that countries um, can choose what they do or don't want to accept. And they can also choose what it means to be paid to do something. Right. Um, so Bolsonaro, who was the last president of Brazil, uh, you know, very you know, big, big, big friend of Trump, recently lost to, to, to Lula. Um, also claimed election he, in many ways, fraud. Also claimed election fraud, you know. Again, these our countries have a lot to, have a lot to share. Um, learn a lot from each other, but uh, but in many ways, the U.S. was willing to to pay Brazil for that. But because of that, it felt more nationalist. It felt more more proud mm. for Brazil to say, "No, we don't want it." And so, because of the implications of paying, it's almost like um, uh, it's not like this at all. But it reminds me of Jurassic Park, where it's like Tyrannosaurus Rex doesn't want to be fed, wants to hunt. That's true for for people and countries as well. Like sometimes the implications of of um, of being paid changes the way in which you feel about something. Right, that, that people are stepping in and telling me what to do, and really? I don't really want to. Like, it's these is these globalists. I mean, there there is that tendency right now, not just in the United States, but across the world, of people saying, you know, we want to do things our way. We don't want anyone else mm-hmm. to come in here. And there's some truth and understanding in that because, you know, why would uh, you know France or China or Russia, you know, know how, know how to take care of the United States when we barely know how to take care of it ourselves uh, because mm-hmm. it's such a big country? They definitely don't. So. Let's not let them in and, and figure that out for us. I, I could mm-hmm. see that being a concern for people in Brazil, uh, where it's mostly just that it's not stable. Of value, they would say no. Yeah, it's mostly just that it's not it's not stable because people, you know, countries and communities are made up of, of different opinions about um, what's there. This happens at the local level as well. You can have um, you know really well financed carbon projects. That uh, that are benefiting the whole community, but they're benefiting it at a at a sustainable rate. So let's just say you have a few million dollars that are going to a indigenous tribe to protect their area because of the carbon uh, sequestration, either through uh, the forest that's being grown or through avoided deforestation, which is this um, imaginary carbon that would be emitted but isn't because they're protecting it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the basis for so many of these carbon investments in forests that you see, which has other question marks attached to it. But in those cases. Again, that can be a major investment, which looks very large on paper, but has to last for 10 years or, or so. Because again, forests are supposed to exist for hundreds of years, and 10 years isn't that long. Right. But then you have other, those communities can be divided over the fact that they need, they need funding more quickly, and they know they can um, make it from cutting it down. And so even in places that are well-financed, there's disagreement around like, what it means to be, um, be paid to do one activity versus another, and the independence that you want from, uh, from one or the other. So- I guess outside of carbon markets and, you know, being able to put a value to the rainforest because it's sequestering carbon mm-hmm. and, you know, people can pay that to offset a flight or, you know, a company can do that uh, to offset their emissions or, you know, a country could pay to offset its emissions. 
Are there other ways to add value to these areas without destroying them? Uh, sure. Outside of those, well, I mean, what's so what's so crazy is when you when you were first learning about rainforests uh, as as I was growing up, it wasn't the fact that there was carbon in that forest wasn't remotely what you were thinking no. about. It's that it's this vibrant place full of life, full of uh, ideas, full of possible solutions. Um, and yet now we're we're reducing forests to this carbon number, which is great for trading it. Uh, great for understanding the impact, and of course, there's reasons for it. But ultimately, the forest must have so much more to offer, yeah, uh, than that. And and so that's that's where I think it comes in on the biodiversity side, um, on the gathering of data, on the fact there's people there. So largely, this is about trying to to tap and look for innovation and the job creation of people on the ground in um, in, in facilitating that. So um, that's something we've been trying to do a rainforest connection, really trying to take on using the audio from these places to uh, to actually understand biodiversity and look for human behavior or sorry look for animal behavior and interactions almost like um you know i'm really looking forward to to this field i guess of eco mimicry similar to the way that your that your sports car is designed based upon the aerodynamics of a beetle's shell i really think there can be entire new dynamics that come out of the way that animals interact with each other but that only becomes possible through this like data mining uh, from the forest and that's just one idea of, of a thousand the point is that is that there need to be ways in which the forest isn't just isn't just being used for its carbon stocks. I love that. It, it sounds like a call. What I'm hearing is a call for innovation from Absolutely. the next generation of we need an econo- we need to put an economic value to biodiversity and mm-hmm. uh, using it for good and, and, mm-hmm. and not destroying it, but you know, creating more value to it. I think the easiest thing and the thing before technology that we had was uh, and before we could really think out of the box. I mean, what you just said, I would have never thought of. I mean, using mm-hmm. uh, data from biodiversity in the rainforest for products that we use outside the rainforest and, and mm-hmm. economic value from that. That's that's genius. There's so many out of the box ideas like that that you know you can't even come up with off the top of your head. The thing that comes to the top yeah. of my head is tourism. Right. That's the one thing that really is a driver of why America has protected the national parks. Do you mm-hmm. see that as a possibility as well? Or do you think it's the innovation here because it's a developing country, it's hard to get to, maybe you don't want tourism because it could destroy it more, like our national parks are kind of like Disneyland a little bit. Like how much do you think tourism plays versus the innovation side? No, I think tourism plays a really, really important role and it is a force for good. There's, there's no doubt in my mind on that. Um, can the entire world's population make it to all these remote places? No. Do we want to be building up the way in which people are, are visiting a lot of places instead of just a few big ones? Um, I, I definitely think we do. I think that it's, tourism has, is a force for good when done correctly. And the fact that it takes some time to get there and that these places are different than, say, going to a national park um, shouldn't, shouldn't stand in the way. We want people to be encouraged to look at diverse experiences when, when it comes to, to, to visiting it. Like, if every national park looked the same, you wouldn't go to them. Um, for the same reason that if you were to go visit a park in South Africa, it's, it should be different than, than Ecuador. And most importantly, we also know that most people aren't going to make it to all these remote parts of the world. Uh, and so I think that there needs to be ways in which we bring what the experience of what's happening there uh, to you as well. So tourism, um, I almost think of uh, t- tourism is about uh, people coming in and, and investing in an area, uh, or sorry, I guess, injecting, injecting their own experiences and, and, and money into an area. There should be ways in which the experience of the forest and what's there becomes an export mm. um, for these areas. Um, and I think that there's opportunities there because nowadays there's not much difference between me and my parents' garage, you know, 12 years ago 
and somebody who who has access to the internet in in some of these remote places. And so I think that there's there's a way in which um, uh, people themselves can be the the driver of innovation on that. It's figuring out a way to export the beauty of nature itself and and the yeah. value that that brings instead of the products that you can get from nature yeah. and uh, you know that yeah yeah that makes me think of just the fact that you destroy a forest for this lucrative business, but then mm-hmm. it's gone and you you don't have it anymore and so it's a very short term win uh, economically for a long term economic and ecological loss. Can you talk a little bit about the the truth to that? Like how quickly, like let's just say you destroyed a uh, a few football fields of, of a rainforest mm-hmm. for agriculture or timber use. How long does it take to actually restore that back? Can you restore it back? Um, it takes it takes quite a while. Now, forest, forests, um, the forests also, like the frontier of forests, like the edges, uh, you know, change a lot. So forests are used to being used to falling down, burning, and then regrowing. So forests are not um, are not like a mountain that cannot that cannot be recreated. Uh, however, there's a rate at which they can grow, and the, and that's that's you can't can't extend that. Those are kind of immutable laws of of nature. So, um, I think what really becomes an issue is when you have these isolated patches of forest. So, um, if you have a big continuous contiguous forest, like a big forest that's that's in a huge patch, and uh, you know there's there's areas forest can be can be harvested in a way uh, that that is sustainable. The issue is when forest patches get get completely cut off, right. almost these like islands. And there's been a lot of research on the fact that it doesn't take doesn't take very much for biodiversity to to be uh, drastically reduced. And once biodiversity is reduced, you don't always know how long the forest can exist without that. Because one example is in in Costa Rica, um, where you know some of the biggest trees, these these huge huge trees that are there, you wouldn't realize that they are entirely dependent upon spider monkeys, for example, to to spread their right. seeds. And so, if you wipe out spider monkeys over the course of the next 50, 60, 70 years, the forest will still be there just fine. But then suddenly the trees can't reproduce anymore. And so, uh, the importance of biodiversity and keeping that stuff going is, is, is incredibly important. And there's you know, tens of thousands of examples of that. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that the forest is not about the trees, it's about the, uh, it's about the entire system that's there. And while that is dynamic in a way and can fluctuate, um, it needs to. We can't take anything for granted. Right. And, and I mean, before humans got here, and this is why conservation versus preservation is so important, in my opinion. Obviously, there's, there's, a, there's a use for preservation, and that's something I talk about in my book that's coming out next year. But the conservation itself is so important because humans are here, right? We've got okay. uh, a few billion people on this earth that, uh, that are constantly utilizing resources. That means we have shaken up the balance of nature, which means okay. that we don't have the natural balance. And in a world without humans, the balance would balance itself out. The animals would restore themselves back to a population that was healthy. The balance would be there. The ecosystems would thrive. And if, a, and if an animal couldn't survive because survival of the fittest, then they wouldn't. And it would just be all natural. That's not the case. I mean, I think of you know, my, my family's cabin in, in northern Wisconsin. Uh, yeah. There is an overpopulation of deer. That overpopulation of deer causes a whole ripple effect of all sorts of problems in yeah. that environment and people would say oh don't kill the deer there's too many you know the deer are part of the ecosystem but when you when you disrupt the balance of an ecosystem it screws up the entire ecosystem even if the trees are still there even if the grass is yeah. still there even if the deer are still there so yeah. your your story about the spider monkeys really makes a lot of sense because you do need that balance and that's where conservation comes into play and all these nonprofits and 
amazing organizations that are working on what is that balance based on where things are at today that makes me think that you know the the way that we've done i mean it has not been perfect but the way that we've done conservation in the united states could be emulated by some of these countries because i think back to my time in washington state where i drive by forests and they they were abiding by exactly what you were talking about. They didn't clear cut the whole thing. They didn't destroy the whole mm-hmm. thing. They left trees up in different places. And it was kind of a patchwork of, of harvesting. And mm-hmm. yes, in a perfect world, we not need to harvest all these trees. Sure. We don't live in that world. They harvested them. The animals still are able to live in that area. They're still able to enjoy that area. And actually, there are other benefits by decreasing wildfire risk and all sorts mm-hmm. of things. So is there a way to instill the American ideal of conservation, which of course we have not perfected, into these countries? And how do we do that? Well, I think it's, uh, what's happening in the United States is, is really interesting because, again, we deforested a huge like, right. much of the country. Um, and because we, had enough, because we had enough land, we were able to make use of it. It's hard to know what biodiversity at, you know, back in the day would have been like compared to now, but we're so lucky that we still have these amazing ecosystems. Yeah. And a lot of the work going into it is around corridors how do we make it possible for these animals to uh to move through so um i definitely think the u.s is a, is a force for good on on setting a standard for that uh, right now and a lot of that's coming from from the rural areas it's coming mm. from ranchers it's coming from um from the rest now at the same time those those conservation incentives that we that were almost baked into american culture smoky the bear and things like that now just like the deer just like the spider monkey we're seeing downstream effects of that and- uh, not I, I i'm not going to blame forest fires on on smoky the bear that's entirely unfair. But at the same time, um, you know, some of the things that, uh, that we assume to be um, important things at the time, we would, we would adjust uh, as well now. So um, I think that it's really hard to predict what the outcomes of, of conservation approaches will be. I don't want to necessarily say to be a proponent of, of just leaving everything alone. I do think that an important part of both understanding and proving that a place is conserved is having people who, who are frequenting it and who are there pretty, you know, looking well to it. But I don't think that um, the U.S. necessarily... One thing I will say about the U.S. is that the, the prevalence of private land ownership as a conservation tool is incredibly, is incredibly important. I would look to spread that uh, throughout the world. Um, I do think that people who own private land are doing a very good job of, of, of conserving it when they want to. And of course, what conservation looks like changes from one personality to the rest. If we, can, if we can normalize some of those standards and, and celebrate all the ways that people are doing it, despite the fact that I disagree on other things, it'd be great. Um, unlike the US, when you say purchase land in Ecuador or, or purchase right. land in Brazil, you have no idea whether it's going to uh, get cut down or not because there isn't, um, there isn't a, the same sense of, uh, of, of autonomy for right. that land. There's that personal stake in private land ownership. And you know when you're thousands of miles yeah. away, whether that's the United States purchasing, purchasing land in Ecuador or uh, the United States purchasing land in Nevada uh, mm-hmm. and, and having a, you know, an agency in D.C. take care of it. Of course, there are, there are benefits if it's done right, but it's often not done right because they don't have that personal stake or understanding of that area. And it's just kind of out of sight, out of mind. If you are a mm-hmm. private landowner that is trying to keep that uh, for your community, for your maybe your economic livelihood, if it's a farm or a ranch or, or just living in the forest because you love living in the forest, you're going to do everything you can to keep that place healthy and it's going to be much more actively managed. Uh, but yeah. you're right, there's a balance there because if you don't have that feeling, then the private landowner could destroy it. So th- there's definitely a, 
a, a struggle here between the role of the government and industry and private landowners. When you look at the rainforest itself, where do you see the most headway coming? I mean, we've talked about the importance of private landowners. We've talked about the importance of the government not being mm-hmm. on the wrong side of this. And we've talked about the importance of of really just every everything when it comes to decision makers. Um, where do you see that balance heading on this? Where would you like to see it? And where do you see the most headway coming from? Um, I see I see technology that could allow us to to both give more capability to local people who again may not be technically landowners, but our stewards are the ones who happen to be in an area. Because, you know, to a certain the deed, whether you have the deed to the land or not, may matter more in the US. It may never matter as much as it does um, as much in other countries in certain parts of them. And so um, what are we count of, you know, what we count as land ownership or, or you know, whether it's yours or not, um, we have to accept there's different standards for that. Now, I do think that these days with technology that's available, these people are increasingly powerful. I think there's, there's new tech, technology and standards and, and, and if we can make it less top down um, to, to get finance to them and also to allow them to show us the innovations that they have. Uh, if there's a way in which somebody in the forest is able to, you know, sell some sell some idea or something that they some sort of product that they're that's coming out of the forest to to the rest of us, that's something that we want to like vastly facilitate. So we want to create um, we want to create real markets for forest products that may be somewhat attractive, but are attractive in a in a, in a greater and more sustainable sense. Um, I love. I that. also think that one of the most exciting things coming out is our ability. And, and this sort of ties into the supply chain idea. Like when you eat a candy bar, you eat a, you know, some chocolate, or when you sit on a, a wooden chair, where does, that, where does that wood come from? Yeah. Or where does that palm oil that's in your, in your chocolate bar, where does that cacao come from in your chocolate bar? Um, the, the ability for us to sort of trace that back has, has been very difficult. Like no, no one's been able to do it. And it's exploited by, by frankly, illegal forestry. Um, trade. I think that, that with technology, uh, with our ability to look at genetics, when this, this, there's going to be a much greater ability for us to almost like magically know where something comes from. Mm. And so I think that uh, once that's there, you can almost be munching on your Mars bar and have the ability to almost figure out like, where is the, who is the person who's responsible, either better or for worse, in this right. area being destroyed or protected? But our company that really stop mm-hmm. that from happening because I feel like that would expose a lot of companies that are. Well, I really feel for so I, yes, I mean I feel for I feel for all elements in this because it is we live in the most complicated moment in human history right now when it comes to global finance and that's pretty amazing and we have the U.S. to thank for that largely in creating a sense of law and order around the world um, and it is really pretty amazing. Now the complexity of that is exploited to bring us wherever we want um, and not to know where it came from. Right, but. You know, is a is a product sustainable or not? I really encourage people to you know look at forest like paper, wood, and and look for say FSC uh, type type marks. But even those those products are imperfect. Ultimately, I think the companies, the end, the companies that sell you something, they need to see that they can make a product better when it is sustainable. At the moment, having a mark on your on your paper or your candy bar or or your furniture. It says it's sustainable is something that not everyone's going to make that choice because they're, you need to be able to show that a sustainable product is actually better. It's, it's a better consumer experience, right? That's going to require innovation because off the top of my head, that doesn't apply to every product. No. Right? If you're, you just, does your, 
does your Mars bar, uh, right. does your Mars bar taste better if it's sustainable versus it, versus if it isn't? Right. And and the companies that are making those products are kind of asking for that. There's so much room for innovation there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I don't think it falls on those companies to do. It falls on entrepreneurs and and the rest of those people to come up with ways. Because they have demand. Are better. They have demand that they have to meet. And mm-hmm. you know, you might say, well, Mars bar isn't a necessity. A Coke bottle isn't a necessity. But if people want it, if people are trying to buy it, the company's not going to stop selling it mm-hmm. because people want it. So mm-hmm. the the change is not going to come from them dramatically differing how they do their business. It's going to come mm-hmm. from innovation that says that that allows coca-cola or mars to say oh we actually want to use that innovation to improve what we're doing Mm -hmm. already and that's that sustainability that's what sustainability actually is 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 efficiency based on what the current landscape is it's not trying to dramatically change the way we live our lives because people are not going to do that i went and got this iced tea before this podcast in a plastic cup i'm not going to stop doing that as much as i care about these issues because I have a demand for that, and I could try to cut it down. I could try to, uh, you know, limit right. it, but I, I'm still going to do it. So these companies uh-huh. need that innovation, and until it's there, we will never be able to do things in the way that we want to. Especially when it comes to protecting the resources that are so valuable in a place like the rainforest. Completely, completely agree with you. And I mean, I don't. It may not be reasonable for a candy bar that's sustainable to taste better than one that isn't, at least in the short term. But that's but that's because we're only thinking about that experience in the right. in the form of what the candy bar tastes like. There are things that are sustainable. We're thinking we, inside if, of a box. Yeah, if you if you're tying the candy bar back to the places from which those ingredients come, and it is it is impossible to deny where they came from, which is where that supply chain tracing comes in. Um, then suddenly the candy bar that isn't sustainable. And the one that is, you know which one of those are, and you can begin to offer products that can perhaps be created by people that are on the ground. What I mean, this is pretty out there, but what if you could, um, you know, eat, eat your eat your candy bar and, and listen to the place where it came from, and that has to be sort of more interesting than if it wasn't. Right. There's who knows. There's 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 ecosystems of products that that can be created from sustainable supply chains, um, and I think ultimately it's it's very CSI television show type stuff. It's very much. Uh, it's very much Star Trek where you like scan right. something and you find where it comes from. But we are on the cusp of making that possible. And hopefully that's um, something that people can build upon. Well, I, and I, I'm struck by your example of, of what you guys are doing in the rainforest as a way to you know, alert um, local communities or to use uh, kind of the aerodynamics of different animals for different uh, you know, cool technologies that we use in urban areas. Like none of those things would be top of mind when you think about how to protect the rainforest but they're outside of the box they're innovative and that's the sort of spirit that we need to protect something that we all know and love and it's it's going to take that spirit of ingenuity because the way that we've done it to protect the rainforest to protect nature is obviously not working and Mm. the things that have been the most effective have been the technologies that have been outside the box and yeah who knows maybe it's scanning a Mars bar and being able to say, be able to watch a short video about exactly where your, you know, bar came from and and who made it and, you know, how it helped equip that community or, you know, something even Mm -hmm. remarkably crazier than that, that we can't even dream up. And that's how everything in the United States and across the world has evolved is people who have dreamed bigger than what is currently possible. And it seems like that's the only way to save the rainforest. Completely agree. I mean, the forest is so much more than than uh, 
than the bottom line of of, uh, of a single product. Right. And um, and you know we have to we have to use what's there to get people there on the ground the ability to get them those products to get us those 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 new innovations. Well, I would love to to visit the rainforest and hopefully spark uh, some ingenuity on my end because this is this has already inspired me just talking about it. But uh, maybe that's something you and I can do at some point here in the near future. Hey. What do you think, listeners? Should we get Benji out of the rainforest? Uh, <laughs> Hopefully, they're all shaking their heads. Nice. Yes, if they're shaking them, yes, no, I indeed. don't listen to them. It's true. Uh, we'll do we'll do one of these uh, mini podcasts from the top of the tree. I would love that. Personally. I would love that. Well, Tover, I mean, this was fascinating. I could talk to you about this for hours, and 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 I would love to have you back on to dive into more uh, of the details on a couple of things. But for now, thank I you. think that's all we've got for time. But I mean, thank you for ha- such an inspiring and exciting dialogue today. I mean, I think the listeners are going to really appreciate this. And, and also just a huge thank you to the work that you do to try to think outside the box and create innovation for this space. Uh, as you know better than anyone, we sure need it down there. Um, and there's a lot of space in this world, not just rainforests, but a lot of ecosystems that need to be protected that don't have that economic incentive yet. And we can create that. We can create the innovation, the ingenuity to, to, to do that. You're one of many people doing that, but you're leading from the front and I really appreciate it. And thank you. I really appreciate the work you guys are doing as well. You and, uh, and ACC. Um, inspire us every day. So thank you so much. We'll have you back soon. Thanks. Thanks. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.